interstates between here and there. Uh, distracted throughout the day, but glad to be here and glad you're here. This semester, we are in the middle of Galatians, a letter that Paul wrote to people that he loved. He had started uh, a church, our church is, in the southern region of Galatia, and uh, loved and taught these people well. And after his departure, some others had come and snuck in and seemed to have led the people he loved astray. And so, so far in our letter, what he's done is reminded them of what's true of Jesus, what Jesus has done for them, that he has made them right by trusting in him. They are declared right. It's not what they do that makes them right. It's not what they believe uh, necessarily or think that makes them right. It's Jesus that makes them right. And then over the last few weeks, we've seen the benefits of that. When you trust in Jesus, the Galatians have the benefits of being not only forgiven and justified, but also adopted. They're, they're, they're sons of God. And uh, they have the benefit of freedom. We saw that last week. They are free from the tyranny of sin and living under condemnation. And uh, for the next four weeks, actually, this and the next three, uh, we're going to look about. We're going to look at the benefit of change. We get to grow. We get to grow. You don't have to stay just like you are. Uh, we're going to look at the same text for four weeks and look at the beautiful life. Of Jesus and how it's held out to us and possible for us. It's something we should long for. It's something I think deep down as humans we do long for. We just don't know if it's possible. And we get to grow and become brave and beautiful like Jesus. Now, at this point, I need to stop and sort of give you a rubric for where we are. And I have one. So at the beginning of Thor, Ragnarok, <laughs> we find Thor deep in the, I guess, the underworld of whatever that place is. And uh, he's having a conversation with Sartre in order to uh, figure out exactly what's going on. He, he feels the threat of Ragnarok. Ragnarok is the destruction of Asgard, his home planet. It's been prophesied that Sartre will uh, eventually be set free. He finds out from Sartre how to uh, prevent this, and so he suddenly is, he frees himself, he defeats Sartre, uh, carries away the crown, locks it up, he seems to have won the battle. He reunites with his father. Everything's going well. And then he finds out from his father, oh no, you didn't prevent it. There's still a battle to be fought. And in some ways, that's sort of where we are in our story. Someone has fought the fight for us. Jesus has won the battle. We've been reunited with the father as a result of his work. And we may think it's all over. He, he thought it was all over. It's all over. It's not over. There's still a battle to be fought. We're involved in it. Change involves struggle for us. There's a conflict that's inevitable that we have to go through. And Paul's going to write about that here in chapter 5, starting in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
If we live by the Spirit, let's also keep in step with the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me if you like. Great Father, we ask that uh, as we gather tonight, you be kind to show us great things in your law. Show us the beauty of Jesus and awaken our hearts a deep longing for it. We were created to be different kinds of people than we are now, weighed down by sin and shame and guilt, things done to us, things we've done to ourselves. Help us in the freedom of Christ that we have to long to be beautiful like him. Teach us what that looks like. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, I remember watching an episode of House about 10 years ago. You guys remember that? Yeah. It's a long time ago now. He's been playing like jazz piano music for the last five years. He's a good musician, by the way. Anyway, uh, in an episode called Mirror, Mirror, uh, the team that House oversees is uh, confronted by a really, they're all strange cases. I was going to say a really strange case. They're all strange cases, no normal cases. But a patient whose uh, particular malady is he mirrors the behavior of whoever is in charge in the room. The episode is called Mirror, Mirror. Uh, Whenever someone walks into the room and they're in charge, this patient begins to, I wouldn't even say mimic, but act out their subconscious desires in his speech. Unspoken desires, but there. Like if you know the person's character, you're like, oh yeah, I know exactly who that is in the room. Um, So it was both horrifying and hilarious to have people's subconscious desires, sinful, nasty wants made verbally clear in the room. So most of the episode is spent with people trying to figure out who's really in charge. Like as you walk in, who's really in charge? Is it me or you? And he would begin to act out. You're like, oh, that's you. Uh, But at the very end of the episode, uh, Dr. House is talking with Foreman, one of the people he works with. And he says about the whole experience, he says this, every one of those idiots, speaking of his team, got some insight about themselves from that patient pig salesman. But not one of them did anything about it. People don't learn. They don't change. But you did. You're a freak. And uh, that's, that's a house way of encouraging someone. You haven't seen this show? Uh, and he did. He, he took what was said and as honest feedback from a mirror, and he changed. And uh, whether it's extreme home makeover or fixer-upper or queer eye, we have this narrative, we're consuming it all the time, that radical change can happen quickly. You leave for a Disney weekend, you come back to a free new house. And as it regards personal change, real personal change, I'm with house on this. The old poet W.H. Auden put it this way, most of us would rather die than change. And so I think on a daily basis, we can be confronted about the truth of ourselves like a mirror, and we can be warned of the consequences. Just think of your grandma, your aunt, any number of people you know that have health conditions. If you don't do this, you're going to die. Well, do they do it? They usually don't do it. 80% of people don't do it. We can be warned of the consequences. We might even desire a different kind of life a beautiful life that we want, but we can't seem to make it happen. We struggle to make it happen in reality. But there's good news tonight that uh, 
There's a lot of good news, actually. I'm really distracted by this awesome cathedral pumpkin. Uh, the good news tonight, if that sounds like you, is uh, you're not alone. That's a common experience. It's a really common experience. If, if you are frustrated with your inability to get past something or grow into something you want to be, it's not just you. And secondly, you can be encouraged because if you're a Christian, growth is inevitable. We'll talk about that. But you need to know that this is not just a small struggle. This is not just a a bump in the road. Uh, What's going on if you're a Christian is uh, you're experiencing a conflict, a war, a battle within you. And so we're going to see tonight that uh, gospel growth Becoming beautiful, living the beautiful life that Jesus has for us, uh, comes through the hard conflict between our wrong desires and the Spirit's new loves. I'm going to say it again. Uh, Gospel growth, that is living the new beautiful life Jesus would have us uh, live, comes through the hard conflict between our, our wrong desires and the Spirit's new loves. So two points tonight, one long, one short, actually one short, one long. Uh, making sense of our struggle, and then making war, not peace. All right. So make sense of the struggle. Uh, Paul here in verse 17 just starts off by saying, uh, hey, we have these desires, and they're warring. And he he goes on to say, uh, they are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You hear that phrase? To keep you from doing the things you want to do. How many of you know this experience? There are things you want to do good things and you can't do them you can't do them consistently you can't do them well enough you know you need to be kind to your mom when you go home you need to love your little brother when you go home he's only 13 he doesn't know any better you you need to uh, not be afraid of the homeless people on the street you need to actually not freak out that you may have gotten an a minus all these things you know you're supposed to do and you struggle to do them you can't do them experience you know this experience don't leave me with my hand alone all right thank you um both the turmoil of the warring desires but also the frustrated end like i feel it the battle and i can't get it done in one sense this is a really universal experience i mean i grew up with very violent cartoons different violent not like one punch man violent more like uh tom and jerry violent you know every like a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other, and then mallets and explosions and cats' heads being blown off, stuff like that. Anyway, angel, devil, whether it's your sense of conscience, the good, good, bad conscience, or the id, ego, super ego, or it's your, uh, it's your uh, emotional brain, fight and flight versus your real thinking brain, whatever it is, all of us as humans have an internal struggle. To some extent, know what to do, sort of want to do it, don't always want to do it. But Paul is talking about a uniquely Christian struggle here. And I think Paul actually is making an argument that this is even worse for Christians. This is harder for Christians. This is where everyone in the room, Christian and non Christians, would say, What? What? Like non Christians would say, What? I'm offended. Christians would say, What? I didn't sign up for something harder. Um, let me explain. Pretty much every Christian, every religion but Christianity works on the basic premise that you have to perform. 
You have to do the rights. You have to pray in the right direction a number of times a day. You have to be good enough. And if you perform and you fight and you're good enough, then you're justified. You're declared right. You're free. You get all the benefits. Christianity flips that on its head. And for four and a half chapters, Paul's been arguing, you don't have to do anything. In fact, if you add it on the wrong side of the equation, it cancels everything out. Jesus did everything. He fought the battle for you. You trust in him. You get his righteousness. He gets your cursedness. You get the benefits of belonging. You're adopted into the family. You get his freedom. Four and a half chapters of that. Don't do anything on the wrong side of the equation. It's all Jesus. And now that he's put it all together and he's told us we're free in Jesus, four and a half chapters later, now, now you fight. Now you fight. On the other end, in other words, we don't fight, we don't strive to be right in order to be declared right by God. Instead, made right by Jesus, adopted into the family, we begin to work out of our lives what Jesus has declared to be true. We are his children, and we're working out the family image. We're becoming more like him. And it's harder, it's harder, I can't say that because I've been on both sides of this fence, Christian and non-Christian, because what's happened as a result of our relationship with Jesus is an invasion. It's an invasion. There's a, there's a new... Uh, there's a new army on the territory of your heart that when you trusted in Jesus, the Holy Spirit moved in, invaded the territory, and there's a new force at work in here that wasn't there before. And so you have combatants, and that's what Paul's introducing us to here in verses 16 and 17. We have these combatants warring within us. We need to know who they are. And Paul says they're the flesh and the spirit. It's really important we understand what he's talking about here. Flesh and spirit is not some, philosophy majors, neoplatonic understanding of the human nature, that we are body, soul, and spirit. I don't believe that's actually biblical very much. I think we're created psychosomatic creatures, united. But that's neither here nor there at the moment. Um, It's another day. Anyway, uh, what Paul is actually talking about is your flesh is not your skin. It's not your body. Scriptures have a high view of the body, much higher than our current view. Um, no, it's not our flesh that's wrong. The word flesh here means our sinful nature. What we were created, corrupted by our selfishness and sin, is called the old man elsewhere, our old nature. It is that which within us that wants to live apart from God. It's that desire I talk about regularly that always is trying to do two things. You should know this by now. Two things. What are they? Do whatever it wants to do, and try to justify itself. In other words, the flesh, its sinful nature, is always trying to do what it wants, whatever it thinks will give joy and life and peace. And then, knowing it's guilty, because it's doing all kinds of things it's not supposed to, says, oh, I need to appease God. And so I'll act good, so he'll be okay with me. But this is all in order to keep God approvingly at an arm length, so I can live my own life. That's what the flesh does. And uh, the Spirit, on the other hand, is uh, the Holy Spirit. It's not some spiritual part of us that all of us have. It's a person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, unique in its nature, that uh, inhabits, moves in when we trust in Jesus. And its job is to show us Jesus and to, to put a spotlight on him. 
that we might behold him and know him and become more like him. That's what the Spirit does. And uh, the Spirit's all over this text, seven times in these verses. So we'll be talking about him a lot the next four weeks. And so those are our combatants, flesh and spirit. And the conflict is uh, the opposition of these two. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what you want. And your heart, your life is the battleground. Every day, every minute. It's the battleground. I'm about to give you the nerdiest example that I've ever given in 10 years of college ministry. You ready, nerds? So a year ago, my one-year-old Dell XPS 13, it's a lovely laptop, by the way, two years in a row, best compact laptop, from whatever thing I read, which probably wasn't true. Anyway, it's a beautiful, lovely machine, and it simply would not do what I wanted. In fact, it wouldn't do anything. It wouldn't turn on. It wouldn't. It was inexplicably doing nothing. So I took it in. Four or five days later, finally, the technician calls. And uh, he said something you don't want to hear when you're about to shell out a bunch of money to a guy. I've never seen this before. I was like, oh, great. Uh, he's really excited, actually. I was like, okay. Um, but it makes sense of what you're experiencing. And it makes sense why you couldn't fix it, because I tried to fix it myself. Uh, he said this, and I didn't really understand it. Nerds will understand it. Your machine was trying to run two different versions of BIOS at the same time. Original one and an updated one. Trying to run them at the same time. Nerds, do you understand what's going on? And why that would have like not enabled my machine to work at all? Yes. Any nerds want to explain to everybody else in like a sentence or two? No. No? Anybody? BIOS is supposed to both begin the machine and run the system operations that make everything else happen. And there were two computing versions, so nothing was happening. And that is the nature of the human heart. We're running two different motivational systems, the flesh and the spirit. And they're at war with one another, so we do not do what we want to do, even what we were created to do. So, Christian, this is sort of your experience. When you trusted Jesus, he forgave you, he adopted you, the Holy Spirit moved in, and he did not delete the old operating system. Your flesh is still there. Your sinful desires are still there. They may have been tampered down a little bit. Their tyranny was broken, but they're still there. And if you're in a room and you're not a Christian, you're visiting and you're exploring around, uh, this makes sense, actually, of what you see in your Christian friends. They are weird. They are conflicted. You sometimes see the confliction. And if, and if you have someone that recently became a Christian, a friend of yours, you now see they have new, strange desires that they didn't have before. And you wonder, where in the world did this thing come from? It happens. They're conflicted. Christians, for you, this means you have a war going on inside of you. A conflict. Because the Spirit has come to make war and not peace. So, peace is a fruit of the Spirit. We'll talk about that later. But the Spirit's come to make war, not peace. All right, so we've met the combatants. Let's talk about how this war is fought and it's fought at the level of desires the desires of the flesh are against the spirit the desires of the spirit are against the flesh we have warring wants okay and let's talk about the fleshly wants first so uh paul here talks about the desires of the flesh desires of the spirit really interesting 
this is almost as nerdy as the XPS 13 uh, illustration. Uh, different word for desire used here. Desires of the flesh is a different word. It's a Greek word, epithumia. That will be the only time, probably in four years that you're here, that you'll hear me use the original languages. But it literally means over-desire. It is an inordinate life-ruling desire. It is a must-have now kind of desire. And you need to know that this uh, is not just an inordinate desire as a desire for bad things, but a must-have now means it could be a, a desire for something good that is out of whack. Make sense? You can desire something good, like some measure of control, some measure of peace, to be loved, but want it so much that it takes over your life. And becomes a, a, one of these fleshly wants. So uh, one of our great singer-songwriters has sung that the heart wants what it wants. Wants what it wants. Heart wants what it wants. The heart wants what it wants. Let's talk about what the heart produces. And I will break it down, 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 down. Yes. Yes. Here we go. So uh, what these fleshly desires, someone, if you're wondering what happened, they will Introduce you later, Selena Gomez. Uh, What the flesh works is explained in verses 19 and 21. These wants produce works of the flesh. Paul says they're evident, meaning, hey, we know them. We're familiar with them. We've all experienced them, either personally or we've seen them. These are not strange to us. And they sort of break down in four categories. I'm not going to go into great detail about them. I may mention some just to make clear to you what some are and what some aren't. The, The first three are of a sexual nature. He, uh, in verse, uh, where are we? Verse 19, uh, says sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Sexual immorality, that word literally means marriage out, sex outside of marriage. The Bible uses this word all the time. It believes sex outside of marriage is wrong. And then um, the second word here, um, impurity, means inordinate desires. Meaning there are sexual desires that are not okay. The Bible is very consistent about this. And, and the last one, uh, sensuality, it doesn't mean like sexual desire because God created sexual desire. It's a good thing. It's a fire meant for the fireplace of marriage. Um, but it means a, a, a lasciviousness, a promiscuousness, even a provocative way of living that uh, that is inappropriate. So... Paul begins with these three. I don't think he highlights them because they're worse than anything. It's just the first ones on his list. So he starts with these three uh, sexual ones. And then he goes on to two religious sins. uh, That of idolatry and sorcery. Um, And then he highlights eight social ones. The first four are attitudinal. They're things inside enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. And then what happens if you have these things inside of you? If you have these things inside of you, then there will be rivalries and dissensions and divisions. And then the last two, drunkenness and orgies. Actually, that word for orgies, y'all think you know what orgies is. Actually, some of you are like, I don't know that word. But uh, in this particular case here, it's actually probably not sexual. It literally means a big drunken party. Uh, Paul is actually highlighting an ancient version of substance abuse, the inability to rightly relate to alcohol and other substances. 
So, and, and Paul goes on and says, like, this is not the whole list, uh, and things like these. Um, now, I want to say a few things about it uh, without going into great detail and not preaching one of these things more than the others. Uh, just notice that the list includes what we would typically call like really messy sins and even some religious sins. They're, they're in there together. And uh, the religious performer can't look down on the messy sinner and say, I'm better than you. And nor can the messy sinner look up at the religious uh, sinner and say, you're such a terrible hypocrite. You're, you're both in the same list. Um, and the fact that you have both religious sins and these really messy sins highlights what I just said earlier. Life like this, Paul describes as being under the law. He uses it twice here. People that live this way are actually living under the law. They are trying to live the way they want, doing whatever they want, and still trying to appease God. They want to live at a distance from Him so they can get the kind of life they want on their own terms. They figured out what they think they need in life. They won't take it from God. God offers peace, forgiveness, satisfaction, joy, purpose. But I'm not going to take it from Him. I'm going to do it on my own. So I have to go figure out how to get peace, life, joy, satisfaction. Those are my needs. And the desires are how I'm going to go get them. I'm going to go get those things by these desires. And uh, Paul says, despite this, despite this, what they end up with instead is nothing. That the end result of this, and just to make it clear, he says anyone that does these things will be excluded. That means regular practices, like you look through this list and you think, oh man, I've done some of those. I still want to do some of those. Um, well, you shouldn't want to. Um, but this is a part of the human nature. All of us are marked by these things. But Paul's saying if you habitually practice these things, if this is what marks your life, be warned. Uh, Life in the kingdom of God is not like this. You're not going to find the joy and peace and rest and beauty and satisfaction you want because it's ultimately in the kingdom and you're running the opposite direction. You're living life on your own terms. So, illustration. Here we go. Got this from a campus pastor named Simon Stokes. He uh, was sharing a Jerry Seinfeld bet. You remember Jerry Seinfeld? Used to be really famous. Now he's just old. Anyway, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, he's still brilliant. He works, and uh, works eight hours a day. He uh, did a bit on his album, I'm Telling You for the Last Time, uh, about candy. And he confesses that uh, the only thought I had for the first ten years of my life was get more candy. That explains my son, my ten-year-old son. Family, friends, school, these were only obstacles to getting more candy. The first time you heard the concept of Halloween, your brain can't even function. What is this? Everyone we know is just giving out candy. Take me with you. I will do anything you want. I will wear anything you want me to wear. I will do anything I have to do. I will get the candy from these fools. So it's Jerry Seinfeld. And uh, the point simply is this. Paul's making it clear that uh, we do what we love. And we will love out of who we are in our hearts. If you're a kid that loves candy, you'll do anything for candy. But what if you're a student that craves approval? What if you're a student that craves and longs for significance, to be taken 
seriously and respected. What anything will you do to get approval or significance? Turn to the good news real quick. Try and do this quickly. It's not just the flesh in us. It's the spirit in us. If we've been uh, united to Jesus by faith, the spirit's at work in us. And uh, it's, it's the normal word for desire because we can't over-desire Jesus. He's too good. Any desire we have for him, no matter how great it is, is completely appropriate. Um, and, and it's the job of the Holy Spirit to make us to work in us a longing for Jesus. It shows us who he is and what he's done. It, and we talked about this a lot last year when we were studying John 14 to 17. The Spirit shines a spotlight on the person of Jesus and all his beauty. And so it reminds us what we've done, and it makes us want to be near him, and it makes us want to be like him. That's what the Spirit wants. The Spirit wants us to be near and like Jesus. And the fruit of that is described in verses 22 and 23. I'm going to talk about this for the next three weeks, so I'm not going to go into a ton of detail here. I'm just going to pick out a few things. And uh, first of all, with the the first three, uh, the first fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace, I believe this describes the kind of relationship we're supposed to have with God. And then uh, the next few, um, patience, kindness, goodness, uh, faithfulness, gentleness, uh, largely describe the kind of relationships we're supposed to have with one, one another. And then self-control and faithfulness describe the kind of relationship we're supposed to have with ourselves. So we'll talk about all those in the next few weeks. I, I, I uh, want to use some insights from uh, Pastor Tim Keller to just talk about the nature of these fruit for a moment, okay? First of all, uh, fruit grows steadily and gradually. Some of you want to be different kinds of people tomorrow. Like right now, I want success, not progress. But fruit grows slowly. It's gradual. But secondly, if you're a Christian, it grows inevitably. It's sure. You will grow. It might take a long time, but you will grow. You will become more like Jesus. You will become beautiful like him. And uh, I have a really weird illustration for this from a pastor named Scott Sherman. He was at a fundraising banquet for an addiction recovery ministry in New York City. And during that banquet, men who had come through the program were sharing their stories. And one of the men was a former mob henchman. He had become a Christian while going through the program. And he was sharing about the difference that Jesus had made in his life. And he shared, the other day, I was riding the subway. And I had my mink coat on. And these two street punks got on the subway and they started messing with me. And they pulled out their knives and they told me... Give him my coat. So I pulled out my pistol and I shot him in the legs. A year ago, before I knew Jesus, I would have shot them in the head. <laughs> See? That is progress. <laughs> it really is. A long ways behind where you may have started, but it's real progress. Gradual, but inevitable. It's also internal. This is not about acting. This is not about behavior, acting or performing. This is about becoming. That the change that happens happens inside of you. Genuine desires and loves changing. It's 
so that it affects the outward over time. It's internal and then worked out. And lastly, this one's a little bit harder to understand, and we'll talk about it more the next couple of weeks. It's symmetrical, meaning this is one fruit, not like eight fruits or ten fruits or how many of it is. They all grow to, together. They're all beautiful, which means like some of you may be like, but I'm a joyful person. I don't know. If you're joyful but you're not patient, that means when you don't get what you want, you probably go back and you're really, really angry with God. Or some of you are thinking like, but I'm kind, but I'm not these other things. Eh, maybe you're not kind. Maybe you're just scared. Maybe you're just afraid to tell people the truth sometimes. It's really easy to mimic some of these things and our natural giftedness and our competencies and our natural circumstances. These things grow up together in beauty. So uh, genuine change, friends, is the slow but inevitable process of becoming beautiful like Jesus. It's not about performance. It's not about your gifts. It's not about your temperament. It's not about how smart you are. Um, it's not about acting. This is about becoming. And, uh, and frankly, here, guys, it doesn't matter how smart and successful you are. You can be smart and successful and still be ugly. You can get straight A's and fail life. And uh, this comes down to what you want. This comes down to what you love. What does your heart want? And what is it producing? Is it producing any kind of signs of the beautiful life of Jesus? Or is it getting choked out by some of these really ugly weeds we just talked about? Do you want life on your own terms? Or do you want Jesus? What do you really want? Because it's a war. If you're a Christian, there really is a war in here. The war is not out there, friends. Turn off the news every now and then. The war is not out there. In the culture, whatever uh, there may be. But the war you really need to be concerned about is in here, in your heart. And to grow and change and become like Jesus, you need to see and hear his love. Paul calls this walking in the Spirit. We'll talk about this a lot next week. Just about done. He calls it walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. This is the language he uses in this text. Let's just call it being tuned to the song of the Spirit. Second nerdiest illustration I've ever used in 10 years. Right here. Who of you know your Greek mythology? A few other nerds. Good. Um, so maybe you remember the sirens in their song. Yeah. These beautiful creatures with amazing voices that lured ships full of sailors to crash on their reefs near their island. And on one encounter, Odysseus ordered his men to put wax in their ears and tie him to the mast. Do you remember that? And uh, that's how a lot of Christians view making it through life. Like, I'm going to live in Tower City by myself. <laughs> so I don't have to know anyone. Sorry, some people don't have choices on the matter, I know. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but I'm going to cut myself off from the world. And that way... It, I won't be tempted by these things um, and hope to make it through. But I, I think actually the way we're supposed to grow and live is demonstrated by another encounter. Jason and the Argonauts were on board a ship. They took a different approach. They had Orpheus, who was on board, take out his harp and start to play music. And it was so beautiful, it drowned out the sound of the sirens. And that's what we need. We need to hear a better, more beautiful song than that old song of what the heart wants, what the heart wants, what the heart wants. You need to turn that down. And if you can't turn it down, and sometimes you can't, 
you need to turn up the beautiful song of who Jesus is and what he's done. A life perfectly lived and then given for you out of love. And when you listen to that song, it changes your heart. It produces new loves, a new desire to want to be beautiful like Jesus. It makes you want to fight, to hang in there, to say no to things you want to do. Say yes to things maybe you don't want to do. It produces in you a life that is beautiful, marked by love and joy and peace and all these beautiful things we're going to talk about. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we... uh,